violent crime is up in Asheville. It worries people who live here, visit here, and do business here. Conservative news outlets have amplified the message that Asheville has become a dangerous city. And that inspired Western North Carolina's U.S. Congressman Chuck Edwards to convene what he called an anti-crime summit. It happened this past Friday at Ferguson Hall on the main campus of AB Tech. Taking Edwards up on his invitation this past Friday were 14 elected officials, prosecutors, and law enforcement leaders. Most were from Asheville and nearby counties, though a few came from outside the region to offer statewide perspective. I was there too. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is a special episode of The Overlook, a daily podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville. The Edwards Summit lasted two hours. I'm making the complete summit available to all my Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Overlook podcast. Here, I'm bringing you an edited version focused largely on voices from Asheville. You'll hear about the roots and underlying causes behind the spike in crime, the challenges of battle this crime and what some tout as victories and hopeful signs. Yes, you'll also get a few dollops of partisan posturing, but on the whole, this conversation proved a lot more civil and reasonable than you might expect from a panel of people across the ideological spectrum. So let me get out of the way. Other than when I introduce new voices as they step in, you'll only hear the panel the rest of the way. After Congressman Edwards led everyone through the Pledge of Allegiance, it begins with an introduction and some landscape setting of sorts from Congressman Edwards. My hope is that by all of us being here today, we'll begin but not stop to have a discussion on the truth about crime in Western North Carolina and what we can do about it. Respectfully and frankly, in traveling our 15 counties and in listening to concerns of the constituents, the issue of us living our lives peacefully is at or near the top of the list of concerns that I continue to hear. Violent crime robs us of our sense of safety, peace, and well-being. It disrupts communities and it hinders progress. Crime's not simply a law enforcement issue. I think it's important that we acknowledge this. And crime knows no political party. While it's not my intent to make this discussion political, we can't escape the reality that most of us on this panel in some way are products of political elections. However, I hope that we will be respectful of one another's viewpoints. We simply have to foster a strong relationship between law enforcement and community leadership and provide our law enforcement officers with the resources that they need to keep our community safe. One of the reasons that I've convened this discussion is that through no one's fault, so many local leaders seem to operate in a silo resulting more from the boundaries that one is charged to serve. But this problem is regional. And while many folks are talking about the issue of crime and keeping our western mountains safe, we don't seem to be talking about it together. To address criminal activity in western North Carolina, community leaders, law enforcement officials, and stakeholders 
simply have to begin to work and communicate together to define the sources of the problems and create solutions within all 15 counties in this congressional district. So let's take a look at just a few statistics. I'm sure many of the panelists here are gonna have their own that they'd like to share, and we certainly want to hear those. And we wanna figure out how we keep score together. But before I speak to those crime numbers that I see, let me say that I don't think these numbers in any way speak to the risk that our law enforcement officers take or the commitment that they make to protect our lives and property. I believe they speak more about our leadership and the policies and resources that are in place or that are missing to allow our law enforcement to do their job and to the actions that we're taking to prevent crime. In March of this year, our fine chief, Asheville Police Chief David Zack, who has graciously joined us here today, told community leaders at an Environment and Safety Committee meeting that violent crime in 2022 trended at historically high rates in Asheville. The department's presentation showed a 17% increase in violent crime from 2021 to 2022, with a 22% increase in aggravated assaults. The FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program defines a violent crime as one of four offenses, murder, rape, robbery, or aggravated assaults. When these four types of crime are on the rise in our community, we must all be alarmed, and we certainly have been, which is one of the key reasons that we're here today. Recent statistics reflect what's been a persistent problem centered around the Asheville community, and let's face it, the Asheville community is the epicenter of population, and so it makes sense that that would be where the statistics would be centered. An Asheville Citizen Times article from 2022 reported that the city's violent crime rate has climbed to nearly double that of the national average, rising 31% in five years, according to police data. Compare that to this. From 2016 to 2020, North Carolina as a whole saw only a 13% rise in violent crime. The article noted that during this time period, Wilmington saw only a 3% climb and Charlotte saw a 13% increase in violent crime. Again, violent crime in Asheville rose 31%. But our issues are not contained to Asheville or Buncombe County. I'm hearing from around the entire district that we're seeing crime on the rise. Both local and national news outlets have run stories on rising crime rates, from Fox News to Asheville Watchdog's eight-part investigation on crime and published earlier this year. Asheville, Buncombe, and Buncombe County and Western North Carolina at large. We owe the folks who live here solutions and a shared determination to create a safer, more secure community. I can promise you this is not the only discussion that, that we're, we are going to have. I'd like to call on Andrew Murray, the district attorney from Henderson County. Mr. Murray, what do you as a prosecutor see as the major driver of crime in our region? 
Andrew Murray is the district attorney for Henderson, Polk, and Transylvania counties. Do it over and over again, and that is a small number that we see over and over. There are analytics, and when I was Mecklenburg DA, that was important because it was such a big district to, to look into those numbers. Now that I'm in Henderson, Polk, I can tell you my DAs know them by name, and so do the police. You know that those individuals. Chris said that a lot of them have minimum convictions. That's because they commit they commit. 10 crimes, and so in plea bargaining, truthfully, that means they get convicted of two or three of those, but the other seven go as not crimes where they are convicted of. Still doesn't mean they didn't do time or didn't have some alternative. But the answer to your basis of your question is, we have a major drug problem. Everybody here knows that. Everybody has seen that directly through family or contacts. It is out of control. It is out of control in at every place in my smaller counties. It is a major problem that we continue to see drugs every day. It is what is causing most of our crime. The other problem is mental health issues. And many times it is a combination of the two of those things, mental health and drugs. And if you have those issues, then you have to feed that at hunger. And that is by committing crimes. And that is by some are just small level or breaking into vehicles or breaking entering into unoccupied dwellings and others decide to rob the local gas station to be able to feed that. And that's where all of our crime, along with the mental health illness, is coming from. Mental health is a significant problem that we, in, in the judicial, is not set up to help with mental illness. We do not have many tools to refer people in mental illness. It is a problem throughout the state. The drug problem is a problem that we need to get control of. We need to have more resources, and we need to take people off the street, especially when they're selling and poisoning our neighborhoods. And so that's where I believe we, we need to start. Analytics are important, recidivism important. I have somebody in my district right now Every time they get out on bond, somehow they make the money to get out of bond and they have 70 crimes. Talk about repeating, 70 crimes. That's it, three and four of the times, 70 crimes that every time they get out on bond and then they just do it again. And their bond may be increased from 10,000 to 20,000 next time. And they make it because they pay the bondsman their 10% or the bondsman allows them to pay it on a, on a monthly rate. And then they go out and commit crimes again. Why? Because they have a drug problem. And it continues and continues until we take them off the streets for years. And this individual will now be going off the street for years, probably 10 years. And that will save significant crime in our neighborhood. And so a follow-up question that I would have to that is really two questions. The first one would be, are there laws missing or that need to be changed to allow us to take folks off of the streets? Is it the number of penalties? And that would be apart from the mental health piece because that's going to be my next question. Or are we lacking the will to prosecute? I think we have law at a low level for possession and things, individuals are not gonna to go to jail. And I'm not sure they should. I'm sure at that level, you want to get them assistance. You want to get them off drugs. You want to get them from repeating. It, so initially it is trying to get them into treatment, trying to get them to change their ways. But once you are selling, once you, it is possession with intent to sell and deliver, once you are trafficking, there's plenty of laws. We can certainly take them off the streets 
for a long or a significant amount of time if prosecutors so choose to do that. Now, it's not always used by every prosecutor, but it certainly is a capable, we are capable of doing that. In the month of May, we put in Henderson County, I think seven drug traffickers in jail. All of them went to jail from eight years to 20 years. But they are trafficking in fentanyl and killing people on our streets. So in my opinion, those people need to come off the streets. And you mentioned the term men mental health, which I think many of us have gotten numb to because we hear it so often and might not understand exactly what that means because it is such a broad, the term mental health has such a broad stroke. Talk to us a little bit more about specifically the types of mental health that you're referring to and what resources might be lacking to address those. All of us know, all of us recognize somebody that's having a hard time dealing with the daily functions that you need to get through in life. And that on the streets, that in the homeless, you see that we see it in the people that come in on a regular basis on small crimes because they're having a difficult time functioning in society. And what happens is they're arrested for causing the disturbance up on Main Street or for not trespassing in the local store and not leaving or for going in and grabbing things out of the 7-Eleven and they come in and they're only given a day or two and they're back out on the streets but nothing is being taken care of the underlying problem. And the underlying problem is they need mental health facilities, they need keep, they need to be in-house often, or they need somebody directed towards them to help them to be able to function and to get to a point. And it, the, those resources are just not available, at least to us in the criminal justice system, to make those referrals, to get somebody assistance, to get somebody help, to keep them from that cycle. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. David Denninger, I'd like to ask you this, the same question. What do you, as a prosecutor, see as a major driver of crime in our region? First of all, Congressman, thank you for inviting our office. David Denninger is an assistant district attorney with Buncombe County. To collaborate and discuss the challenges that we have, but also the solutions. I'm thrilled to see Chief Zach and our sheriff here. We do enjoy a productive partnership and I think that's worth noting. On a weekly basis, we have domestic violence prosecutors who are meeting over at the Family Justice Center to support and meet with domestic violence victims and support our counterparts in both of these departments over at the Family Justice Center. We do the same thing for sex crimes. They're being reviewed on a daily basis, or I'm sorry, on a weekly basis. We have a, I think it's a bi-monthly meeting now on, on gun crime and recidivist offenders, just like you've been talking about. And it's worth noting that we do have a working collaboration in this community and we meet all the time to try and confront these issues. But to answer your question, Congressman, recidivists do cause crimes. I agree with that. Why are they recidivists? It's because of poverty. It's a result of drug addiction. It's a result of mental health crisis. It's a result of homelessness. And it's a result of parental neglect. We have problems, sure, in this community. 
those are the causes. We have the option as the district attorney's office and the discretion to decide how we're going to handle any given case. We see everything from misdemeanors to murder come through our doors. And we take it very seriously. It is our obligation to pursue cases of rape, cases of robbery, cases of gun violence, and cases of murder. But at the same time, we have to be cognizant of other crimes. And we have a lot of other crimes. And most of the property crime, the drug crime that we see, is the result of parental neglect, poverty, drug addiction, mental health problems, and homelessness. And I, I say I'm thrilled to, to be a member of this panel and to especially have a congressman convenient because oftentimes it's just the chief of police and the sheriff. But what we need, congressman, is resources. We are, I think, if you look at your district, each of the counties in your district represent counties that are at high, the highest risk, all of them, not just Buncombe, but the highest risk for negative outcomes as a result of the opium epidemic. We had, when you look at our, the homelessness numbers that were run last year, 15% of the homeless that are currently in Asheville started in a county other than Asheville, and they're now here. The year before it was 25%. So I think that functionally we are the ICU of this region because we have some resources that the other counties don't, but gosh, we need more. And so I believe that we are proud to have more diversion programs than anywhere else in Western North Carolina. We have drug diversion, we have shoplifting diversion, we have homelessness diversion programs, we have a sobriety court, which is now gonna be an academy court nationally. It's gonna be adopted as a national model and used as an example for how to get positive outcomes from people who are suffering from alcohol and drug addiction. And so that should be supported. And that's what we really need, is funding, is the backing of your office, the backing of Congress to support these efforts because we are functioning as the ICU. And that is how we can combat crime. We can be tough on crime, but let's be smart on it too. Let's fund these programs. Let's divert first-time offenders and put in, put in prison rapists and murderers. Thank you. And so I would just like to ask a follow-up question because the issue of resources, which, let's face it, always means more money. Whether I served in the North Carolina Senate and definitely now that I serve in Congress, folks are coming forward saying we need more resources. At, this, at the same time, we recognize that Taxpayers are stretched already. And so what role does prioritizing money that we are already spending in state and local and federal governments play a role? For example, I just read that Asheville completed a budget. I don't remember the number. It seems like it had been $240 million or something. What, at what point do we need to start prioritizing mental health resources that we hear everyone saying that we need in the budgets that already exist. Meaning, are there maybe some things that we're spending money on that might not be as important as the resources that you're speaking of? I'd like to answer by telling a story. All right, so if we, and I'll be very quick, I see the time. So, <clears throat> It costs, I'm estimating, it costs $130 a day or something to keep someone in one of our jails. 
right? So there's money out the door. We have, uh, there was a man who's infamous in Asheville for having been arrested something like 500 times. He's known to everyone as Little Tennessee. He has horrible mental health problems. He has horrible alcohol problems and he is routinely trespassed because he's urinating in front of a business or he's cussing at somebody. He's drunk, look, he's drunk in public. He's not hurting anybody, but he's drunk in public. And it's alarming, rightfully so, to members who pass by him. But he has been arrested over 500 times. That's $130 a day for him to be in there. And for years, I and other prosecutors saw him coming to court, getting arrested, being released. Because look, it's normally a secondary trespassing charge. That carries with it a fine. And a judge was not gonna find the homeless guy. What's that gonna do? They would say, oh, the issue's released. He's sober now. And they would release him. For years, we saw him go through this. And for years, we said he needs treatment. He said he needs treatment. But because of the structured sentencing that we have on misdemeanors, we really even couldn't get him that through the justice system. And you know what? It's been six months, eight months, a year since we've seen him. And the reason is, he talked to Homeward Bound, he talked to AOP and he got housing. And we've stopped seeing him. So compare the $130 a day in jail versus the expenditure of resources on him in that way. And I think you're coming out green, Congressman. I would suspect that you're preparing to run for some sort of political office. How, how effectively you dodge that question, but I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. Where does prioritizing the money that we're already spending come into play to, to get us the resources that we mean? Can I help? Because I think this is not an invalid point, and it's not dodging the question. Asheville Mayor you Esther Manheimer. You want to pay to incarcerate people for their short term, their lifetime. Money is money. We know what causes the problems we're seeing on the streets, and it's because we're failing to address the very basic root causes. Quality, safe housing, healthcare, quality education. The state's not investing in education anymore. And we need a strong community and everyone needs to be able to have access to a good job. We are talking about what happens when someone fell all the way through the cracks and has to meet one of these people in a courtroom or in a jail. But you're asking how do we not have that happen in the first place? And I don't think that this is untrue. We have to invest resources in the things that help people never get to that point in their life so that we're not having this conversation. Certainly. I appreciate you interjecting, and we're not going to answer this question here now. But I do know that as I look at various budgets that are out there on the local, on the state, and on the federal level, with all the talk that I hear about resources that are needed, because there are not unlimited re resources, the local taxpayers can only be stretched so far. The state taxpayers can only be stretched so far. I'm just thinking and, and suggesting that we should be looking at the money that we're already spending and maybe reprioritizing how that's spent to address mental health issues or housing. So thank you for that. I meant no disrespect. I was just trying to add a little levity 
to uh, to, to the situation. So, so thank you, and thank you, Chief Chief Zach. You are in the unenviable position of serving as the the chief of the largest metropolitan area of of this district, and you've done it with distinction and and professionalism and we are all so grateful for the service of you and your team and you're one of the most important advisors that we have in this in in this district your opinion matters so i'd really like to hear from you on where do we go from here we heard and i recanted some of the statistics from a report that you had cited earlier the mayor shared with me only a day or two ago that we may have been, we may be seeing some improvements. So where do we go from here? What do you need from the folks on this panel? What do you need from the folks in this audience for uh, us to address the issue? Asheville City Police Chief David Zack. Where do we go from here? We ha I don't think we've heard anything new or unique. We know. Mental health is a huge issue. We know the resources are scarce. We know addiction, meth, opioids is a huge problem, not only here in Western North Carolina, but nationwide. We know this already. We know about problems with affordable housing. We know poverty drives crime. We know all these things. So yes, where do we go from here? It will always be, if we're going to be successful, is where we put our resources. And those resources will always be a challenge on how we acquire those resources. Now, when you start talking about locally, where do we go from here? I think that these staffing issues at APD at this point are very well documented. We know there's a huge problem here. We know there is a crisis across this country in bringing people into the profession of law enforcement. We see police officers ending their careers sooner than we ever have in the history of this profession. We see an applicant pool that, I think some think that this just started, but those of us who've been around the game for a long time knows that we've been seeing issues with recruitment for at least 10 to 15 years now, where we've seen fewer and fewer applicants seeking a career in law enforcement. And something that was said by another speaker just a short while ago is officer presence matters the size of your department, those are the resources. And when we don't have sufficient resources, we are going to continue to struggle. As we do, again, we're suffering from resources on the mental health side. We're suffering from resources on the addiction side. As the mayor pointed out, we're suffering from resources in education and in housing. So it's resources. And until we find a way and I don't know what that way is. I'm just a police chief. I'm here about crime. That's what I do. But until we have those resources, identify them, prioritize them, where do we go from here? I wish I, if I had the answer for that, I wouldn't be sitting at this table. It would be a much larger table in Washington, D.C., making a fool of myself there. That's, that really is it. Locally, we know the concerns. There, there is good news out there. There's a lot of bad news out there. We have seen a five-year increase in violent crime from 2018 to today. We've seen violent crime go up in this city 38%. Those are difficult numbers. In 2020, however, 
historic levels of shots fired calls in this city. Over the last two years, we've seen those numbers come down dramatically. So there is good news. We are being able to direct our limited resources at this time to some of the most serious and violent offenders in this city, and we've been doing a good job removing them. But we are just one part of that system. We are not the entire system. The police arrest, the DA prosecutes, but we also have magistrates and judges. And I think we need more of those folks at the table as well to talk about how they're performing in their end of this game. And I have some serious concerns about that. So where do we go? We keep fighting, right? We keep moving forward and EPD will continue to do the best job we possibly can. And my officers are doing one hell of a job. And so I'd like to ask you an additional question that shifting topics just a little bit. I hear a lot from folks in the area about panhandling. Is panhandling a source of crime or just a nuisance? And is there anything you could, that can be done about that? Panhandling is a violation of the law, so yeah. it's. But again, it's a question of directing resources. And with greater resources, we could give more attention to proactive law enforcement. As has also been said, we can't arrest our way out of this. No one's going to go do time for panhandling. It's just not going to happen. And those who are most often engaged in that activity, a fine is not going to deter it. What will deter it is the presence of the police and our ability to potentially direct people to resources. But we know. Our cops on the street, our cops who've worked downtown in areas throughout this city know that when they see the uniform creates an expectation of behavior, just its mere presence, and know what's tolerated and what isn't. And over time, APD has been very effective when they had the ability to be present. We don't have that ability right now. Eventually, we'll get back to that point, and we can be pro more proactive when we're talking about nuisance-type violations. But arrests and fines and citations, if we're talking, is that going to be a long-term solution? No it, no, it won't. no, it will not. But I do think if we have the presence of our officers, we can set the tone on what is acceptable behavior, and there is nothing wrong with that. That is not being a lack of empathy, that doesn't mean we don't care, that doesn't mean that we're being mean or hard. It's just, there's what's acceptable and there's what isn't. And when we have those resources, we'll be able to address it more effectively. Sheriff Miller, thank you for being so patient. And I'd like to offer you my personal thanks for the, the fine deputies that you've provided us to make sure that we have law and order here at AB Tech, both inside and outside the room. How about a big round of applause? For you? Thank you. I'm going to give you this. Tell us what you're seeing. Buncombe County Sheriff Quentin Miller. Let me just say thank you for having us here, Congressman. And also, I would like to thank all the panelists here. 
and also the comments that have been made because I think we all understand that we are living in a different time. But I've often stated that what, when did you know it? What are you willing to do? And so it's easy for us to point fingers, but we have to do this collectively as a community. I've talked about community of we, and what does that really mean? That means that police and law enforcement, we don't have all the answers because as Chief Zach stated, if we already had the answers, we've already done it. We don't. We understand a lot of things is happening, but all I see a lot of times is that how do we hold people accountable? How do we enforce the rules and laws that are on the books? And then how do we get a prosecution? And so I think that is some of our challenges. They speak for themselves. And I also want to go back to this item we talked about resources. It doesn't go away. We need the resources and we can talk all day about the things we would like to do, but if we don't have the resources, we can't do it. If we don't have the officers on the street, it's not gonna happen. I also presented earlier today the data from the SBI. And if any of you would like to see that, I won't go into detail. I was going to go into detail, but I'll be respectful of time. But you can read that and you can see that here in Buncombe County, the crime index has went down for the last three years. And we can stand on that because of the men and women that work at the Buncombe County Sheriff's Office being committed. And they do an excellent job and I do appreciate you recognizing them. But also I would like to tell you that we've had 16 homicides in the last two or three years and we've charged 16 people. And we have a hundred percent charge rate. And so when I speak and think about our criminal investigation division, I would tell you they're second to none not only in this region, but I would challenge you about in the state. And that's because of the hard work of the men and women. But also let me tell you why they're able to do some of these things. It's because their community, they're committed to be out in contact and building relationships with their community. So what happens is the community is helping us. Don't think that we've done this alone. We have not. What has happened is our community has used tips and I'm sure the chief would assist me or agree with me that the tips coming from the community is how a lot of things are being solved. And so when we start pointing fingers at law enforcement, I always tell people one thing, take the mirror, right? Look in the mirror and tell us how you can help us. Do not think we can do it by ourselves because we keep telling you we can't. And so I'll just, with respect for time, ask each of you to, when you leave here today, Challenge us, this committee up here, to be accountable and hold us accountable. But we should also challenge you to be accountable, to also stand with us, not against us, stand with us. Because the crime that you see, it doesn't happen without you guys knowing. I also often say this, the crimes that are happening out there, law enforcement is not on every corner, but the community is, right? And none of us, can do this alone. The law enforcement will be present. We will do our part. But again, in closing, we need you. And if you guys have any questions about what we've been able to accomplish here in Buncombe County, just look at the crime index or the report that we put out. And I just want to clear this up. And so I want you to know that I would agree that APD has been out there busting that hump. All right, and the reason I can tell you that is because we can see it all the time. So Chief, I want to publicly tell you, thank you and a good job.
And so, Sheriff Miller, I have a couple of follow-ups to some of the things that you said. You made the reference to this group before you start pointing your finger at law enforcement. Talk to us a little bit and be frank. What is it that you mean when you're suggesting that folks are pointing their finger at law enforcement? So that's pretty easy. <laughs> I don't do much on Facebook. I very seldom read the newspaper, but I know it's there. And when I tell you that there's criticism enough to go around, it's there. But also when you go out into the communities and you make contact with the citizens, they tell you. And so when I say they tell you the good and the bad, and most of it is bad, and I ask them a simple question, what have you done to help? We have stepped into these jobs, and I would just tell you, we don't want you to feel that we are victims here, but we want to look at, you say, be honest. The facts are, if we do this together, we have an opportunity when we think about fentanyl, when we think about the mental health, we all know someone has been affected by mental health or substance abuse. We all do. And what happens is we don't say anything. We don't try to get them help until what? There's a, some type of confrontation with law enforcement and there's arrest made and there's some type of force used and everyone loses their mind. And I'll just simply tell you that if we know someone who has mental health, call somebody, get them help before they have that confrontation, get them help before they have this engagement with law enforcement. And we also talk about repeat offenders. When people, a lot of folks are getting out, they're going to programs. But I would tell you, none of these programs work without support from family members, support from communities. And it's not there. That's just the bottom line, because if it was, some of these people that would be repeat offenders would not be repeat offenders. Is that frank enough? Well, that's, that's frank enough, but I'm going to put you a little bit more on the spot. But because we've heard, and I think that we all know, one of the critical parts about you and Chief Zach and Sheriff Buchanan and others being able to recruit and retain good officers, law enforcement officers that are willing to put themselves out there and take the risk is largely dependent on how well they feel supported. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you a very pointed question. On a scale of one to 10, where 10 is the highest, how do you feel that your department, or office, excuse me, your office in general is respected by the community? What, in their normal day-to-day -day interaction with the public, on a scale of one to 10? So, first let me tell you that that's probably an unfair question because I really don't know, but I would tell you about my commissioners. And I would tell you my number there would be 10 because they have supported us in things that we've done. And I didn't say we always agree. I said they supported me. And so they have always supported me. And a lot of times you can tell how much support you have is by how many times we have tips, how many times people call and say, hey, we like this information to share with you, share this information with you. I'll just tell you personally, I've had people turn themselves into the sheriff, and this is about relationship building. And I will tell you that I think we are doing a better job because we divided our sheriff's office, and thank you for that, sheriff's office into zones, which simply means our entire sheriff's office now is in community engaged. 
not one or two people engaged, but the entire office is engaged because now they're able to get out of the cars, they're able to see people where they are and build these relationships. So I'm hoping that will also increase the number of relationships, increase the numbers of people willing to participate and assist us in doing our jobs. So I would tell you, for my commissioners, I'm gonna say a 10, and I would have to yield to my folks that are out there about what they feel, and I'm thinking they're saying eight, seven, eight, 10. They say 10, so it's 10 for 10. I'm, ex I'm excited to, to hear that uh, your office feels that they are well respected. I think that should be a charge to all of our citizens to help make sure that it happens. Chief Zach, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you the same question because I think that's important. And you can speak and give me a number of one to 10 from just your daily interactions with your officers, or I don't know if you perform some sort of regular survey but help this community know to what degree that your officers feel respected and appreciated. I think we've come a long way from 2020. I think we can all acknowledge 2020 was a particularly difficult year nationwide, obviously with COVID, but then nationwide civil unrest, which hit home. Something happens thousands of miles away in Minneapolis and Suddenly, people in Asheville think it's justifiable to start throwing rocks and bottles at their local police department's heads. So if you would have asked me this question in 2020, I would have said it's very low. But I think the city, I think the police department, our community, our city leaders have realized that we all make mistakes in 2020. We all could have done things differently. And all of the relationships have been improving drastically and the support is, has been there and continues to be there. And we all seem to recognize at the same time that there's still more work to do. And from everyone I've talked to, from our city leaders to our community, to our own officers, my daily discussions with our city manager is, we've come a long way and we still got a ways to go and we're gonna get there and we're all committed to the work, which I think is most important. We know what we're doing well, we recognize when we're not doing something well, and then we seem to be quick to adjust and change course and make the correction that's necessary. All of that, and on top of it, and I think the sheriff will agree with me on this, if he and I are both running very professional organizations that are well respected in the law enforcement community, we're going to get people who want to come to work for our respective agencies if we're well run as well. However, this vilification from certain media outlets continues to be a major element in this profession's ability to attract new recruits. And there are certain outlets in this city who continually vilify the police department, even when it's proven to them with video evidence that the narrative that they're creating is false and then double, triple, and quadruple down on it, that will affect our ability to recruit new officers for this community. So it all goes together. And because we do have work to do, give, 
give us and talk to citizens at large just real quickly some small examples of things that we can do to show our appreciation to to our law enforcement whether it's city or, or county you want to start sure would you say i think <laughs> i think the sheriff already mentioned it the police can't be on every corner but the community can both of our agencies have anonymous tip lines that have proven to be very successful in our ability to solve major crime. So that sort of community involvement, the willingness to get involved, and we're making it easier and easier every day. To be very attentive of our budgets and understand that, again, we talk about resources and we hear our community now, it wasn't that very long ago when we were hearing defund the police. And now we're hearing from our community, no, we don't want that. That's very important. Sheriff, is there anything you can add to that? Yes, as I stated before, I think it's time for us to stop talking. I think it's time for us to start with actions. And I think actions begin with us all being held accountable. And I think the community should be the ones holding us accountable and we should hold you accountable for your support. And so I would just say this in closing that the Sheriff's Office here in Buncombe County is the only one in the entire state that has an advisory board. And what that means is that we're being held accountable by the citizens of this community. And so I would encourage others to think about what does that look like for you each and every agency within the state of North Carolina. Thank you. I'd like to transition just a little bit from law enforcement to maybe a citizen's feedback and call on Helen Hyatt with the Coalition for Public Safety. Helen, tell us real quick, first of all, what is the Coalition for Public Safety? We are a concerned group of citizens and businesses that formed when we were frustrated with the growing crime and vagrancy in Asheville. And we wanted to find ways to support the police department so that it can rebuild its force. And we advocate for the our council to have starting salaries that match local cities and around here because they, we do not pay enough to recruit them here. And this is a very expensive city, a very expensive city to live in, and it's a very hostile working environment. And we would like to see the City Council to regularly, verbally support the police. And we would like our written media to be less hostile to the APD so that they can do their jobs and that we can recruit more folks here. We attend uh, many public safety meetings and council meetings to express our concerns. And we have toured the shelters, the jails, and we have a great understanding of what needs and what still needs to be worked on. We need to find a way to unite and to bring support to the police department so that we can hire folks here, because we need this department to be present and on the streets and doing what they need to do. Very concise, to the point, and on target. So thank you very much for that. Let's transition briefly to the, to the business community. We do have the Asheville Chamber of Commerce recognized, represented here today with Zach Wallace. Zach, thanks. thanks for being here. What are you hearing from the business community? What's missing? What's working? 
where do where does this group of leaders need to be placing our emphasis? Yep. Thank you, Congressman. So the Asheville Area Chamber of Commerce is made up of more than 1,600 businesses, representing about 80,000 employees here in Western North Carolina. So we're a membership organization. We're always seeking to hear from our members, and they they always tell us what they're thinking. My voicemail, my email, I hear these stories of employers who their employees are costed, assaulted as they're going to and from work, customers damaged to their property where they're going to be closed down for the next day or two or more, losing business, not being able to continue to pay their employees. We hear a lot about negative reviews left about an establishment caused by the things that are happening outside of their control, what's happening on the sidewalk outside of that business. And that can really create a crisis of consumer confidence for our members. Customers who are unwilling to go to certain areas during certain times of the day, whether the data backs that up or not, it's more of a feeling and they're not going to go there. We don't think that this is a problem that's unique to Asheville. In my communications with chambers across the state, we hear some of the same stories from small and large cities. Our folks really want to be solution oriented. They want to make sure that elected officials are hearing these stories and our elected officials have. We've had some public events where elected officials came and listened to employers and employees just tell these stories. The chamber is willing to come beside our public officials and bring innovative solutions. We've continued to talk about a business improvement district in downtown, which would enhance resources for our business members. We also have heard in the last month or so, and I think it's been mentioned, the cooperation between the city and the county, the pilot programs from each, increased pay for sworn officers approved by unanimous vote this week at Asheville City Council. Those are all things that our members hear and appreciate. I think the presence downtown has been the thing that I've heard the most. They're seeing officers, they remember seeing those officers before and they're so happy to see them again. And so we're looking forward to say that what's happening is a great first or second step and want to see what happens to, to continue to build on those steps. Thank you for that. And I think you just struck at the heart of what's important here in Western North Carolina. Regardless of what the data says, folks want to feel safe because there's been so much talk out there for years. It's when they, when they go to work or when they come downtown, their feeling, their experience is what matters, regardless of what any statistic might show us. So thanks for sharing that. You had a follow-up. Yeah, just really quickly, the sheriff talked about what can citizens do, and so we've encouraged our members to make sure that they're tying their surveillance system into the sheriff's system that they have now, that they're meeting with officers from APD who will come out and look at their premises and say, you should cut these bushes or you should make sure you've got a light there. And then we've also really pushed our folks to continue to report crime. We want those crime statistics to be correct. And so making sure that they're reporting it, making sure that their employees are doing the same. Thank you. Chief Zach, I'm gonna ask you a follow-up question to, to something that Mr. Wallace asked. I know that there was a temporary program in, in, in place with cooperation between the county and the city. It seemed to me like I saw on a news report that was about to expire or has expired. Tell us a little bit about that experiment, what, what results you saw as a res from that, and have we renewed it? What's the status? The initiative is over. 
let's start there so we don't have all the data and all the numbers of what was accomplished. What I can tell you from the police perspective, and maybe the city's perspective as well, this was not an effort that was just the police department. Public Works was involved, Parking Violations Bureau, Public Works were all involved in working downtown. We had our city council doing safety walks with us. So this was a citywide effort. And I think when we labeled ourselves with a 60-day initiative, we painted ourselves in a little bit of a corner because it gave maybe the impression that there was an expiration date on all of this, when in fact there isn't. So we will, the police department will always go, we are data-driven. And if there is a major shift in criminal activity, we're going to move to that particular area and our presence in one area may be temporarily reduced. So it isn't over. This is going to be an ongoing effort. You're going to continue to see city workers and even our partners in, you see Claire up there, our partners up there, hey Claire. Our presence will all continue city and county because you just don't need a police presence. That presence of city workers, whether they're in wearing, they're members of the fire department or our parks department, it doesn't matter. When it says city of Asheville or county of Wonkamon, on it, presence matters. And there is no intent, there is no expiration date on this effort. Again, from time to time, will there be more police, fewer police? Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna have to make those adjustments, but we make those adjustments every single day. So we put together an effort, we've been talking about how we were all going to work together for a very long time, and it came time to stop talking and start doing. And that's exactly what we did, but what we are seeing downtown has been an effort and a coordination that has been in the works for a significant period of time. And so no, no expiration date. We will continue. That's encouraging. I'm excited to hear that there is no expiration date. The media did lead, at least me to believe that there was a point in time that that would end. I'm gonna throw out a question and if you've got an opinion on this, just raise your hand. I'd like to hear from you. Uh, one of the things that I hear from constituents regularly about is needle exchange programs. And I know that this was really an important topic that I embraced while serving in the North Carolina Senate. There certainly is some conflicting, uh, or some conflicting ideas about is it a good idea or is it, is it a bad idea. Maybe we're enabling folks some folks would say, some folks would say maybe we're presenting or preventing disease. But I hear from a lot of folks in this area that these exchange programs might not be working. And so I'd just like to hear from any leader up here on this panel, what, and do you have an opinion on that topic? Helen. They just not run correctly. They are not exchange programs. You get as many as you want, and then you leave them all over the city for somebody else to pick up. They are not exchange programs. Even when they have the boxes for the folks to put them in, once you've shot up, you're so high, you don't know where to put that thing. You just drop it on the ground, or you lay on the ground with it hanging out your arm, and nobody picks it up except for parks and rec, sanitation. It's all on the city to clean it up. The exchange programs don't 
work properly. They probably work to prevent disease, that's fine, but you've got to run them right. All right, thank you. Thank you for that. Representative Rudow, I'm going to give you some, some microphone time here in just a minute as we get closer to wrapping wrapping up, but I want to ask you the pointed question about needle exchange because I know when I served in the North Carolina legislature, there was a lot of conversation around this. Do you, is there any conversation taking place in Raleigh? Kayla Brudow, North Carolina Representative District 116. The, these exchanges more accountable? Thanks for that question, Congressman. I, I want to start with a story as well, and I was on a, a ride-along with the Sheriff's Department, Officer Shepard, who was just an, the model of kindness, empathy, and professionalism. And I think when the Sheriff was talking about kind of perception in the public, we saw that firsthand in folks. He knew folks, he was a part of the community, and really was just an amazing presence. And the thing I heard from him over and over was opioid overdoses. And and then that night we got a call about an opioid overdose. And unfortunately nobody got to that person in time and that, that person died. And I think we see the family and you see the mom and you see a family that's broken forever. And I think folks like that and those families really want solutions and they want things that help. And, and I just had a conversation with a friend of mine who works in the opioid overdose and substance abuse and study after study show that these things work and they help people and they help reduce overdose deaths, which should be our priority. And that, that's what that family, I think, wanted for me and they wanted from everybody else was that we need to give these people resources. And we've talked about this over and over again today, resources to help. I, I think, Helen, to your point, I think there, I'm sure there are ways that we can run things better, like we can run everything better. But I think we should start with the background that these kinds of programs save lives. They're proven to help people. And we can improve them like we can improve everything else. But I think what that family wants and what every family wants who has somebody who died and had somebody who got a disease or something else from substance abuse disorders, they want those folks to, to get help because it's a disease. Thank you. Mayor, you've been very patient too, and I appreciate that you are, have placed such an importance of crime control that you took time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. I'd like to give you, uh, maybe, I'm going to say this at great risk, all the time that you like, <laughs> to share your comments and observations of what we've discussed today and what you're and what you may be experiencing as a leader of this great city. Thank you. First of all, I want to tell you, thank you for convening this. I had my doubts. We talked about that. <laughs> and I scolded you for your press release because I thought it was terribly partisan. But I'm really heartened to hear this informed discussion today. And what's happened during this discussion happens pretty much every time I get together with people of differences of opinions we find a lot of common ground. And a lot of the things I'm hearing from these folks has a theme running through it, no matter how you come at this issue. I, I'm a lawyer, I'm a civil lawyer, so thank goodness I'm not in criminal court, but I do get a chance to travel to all the counties in Western North Carolina. I get to go to Clay County, yeah, <laughs> all the way out to Cherokee and all over, and I've, I see what you're talking about and I, I think what we're experiencing here in Asheville and Buncombe County is a magnification of the problems we're seeing throughout Western North Carolina. This is an important discussion to me and I'm glad that we're having it in a way that isn't infused with partisan politics. And I say that because Asheville is the economic hub of Western North Carolina. 
It has the greatest daytime to nighttime change in population of any city in North Carolina. And that's because people come in every day to work, they go to shop, they go to their doctor's appointments, they obviously come to visit Vic Isley with our tourism development authorities here. And so we should all be invested in a strong Asheville and Buncombe County because it helps support an overall strong economy for Western North Carolina. So when I see national coverage in the news that talks about high crime in Asheville, I think about the company that's deciding not to locate here or the company that's deciding not to grow themselves here. They're worried, God, I heard Asheville's got high crime. I saw it on Fox News. So maybe we shouldn't travel there or make our investment there. It has real consequences when we sling partisan politics at each other. So I'm glad we're having an informed and factual conversation today. We are changing things. I wanna thank the chief, I wanna thank the sheriff for the increased efforts downtown. I work downtown, I'm hearing from people great positive feedback. They're really seeing a difference. We're gonna work really hard as a council to support the department and the men and women of the department so that you can keep it up and you can hire more people and not just new Cora, the police dog we have, who's the, probably the most popular now. I hope everyone's not jealous, but <laughs> she's pretty great. And I also want to thank our fire department, which is starting a community responder program, because we know that the police cannot address these complex issues alone. We have representatives here from our community paramedic program. We have representatives here from our housing field. We have David Nash with our, our housing director for outgoing housing director of public housing in Asheville. And I know Scott Dedman was here with Mountain Housing Opportunity. These are folks that are trying to help address the underlying issues that cause people to end up in these situations. And thank you for giving me this time. I do want to share, you, share a story with you. This year I participated in the point time count where we go out and we count how many folks are experiencing homelessness in our community. And I crawled under a few bridges and I talked to people and I asked them, what's going on with you? What, why, why are you experiencing homelessness here in Asheville? And I talked to a young man who had aged out of the foster care system in South Carolina. Now he's about 30 years old and he's bouncing around and he was up here. And I talked to an elderly gentleman sleeping in a tent near Walmart down in the River Arts District. And he said that he'd been squatting in a house with no power or water and somebody finally figured it out. He'd been there like five years. And this, he was perfectly capable of taking care of himself but he needed a place to live. But I think about the people in our community, the teenager, from one of our public housing neighborhoods who three weeks after his 16th birthday shot and killed someone. And today he's graduating from high school in prison where he's serving a 25 year sentence. How do we help people avoid these incredible dire conclusions in their life? So I'm glad you convened us because I think this is an opportunity for us to ask you and the Congress to think about how to support communities as we struggle with these issues that are really national in nature. Yeah. 
I hear a lot from people older than me and they say, it used to be that there were places for people to go or we had mental health institutions or different social safety nets that would help deal with these situations. And I think we've dismantled a lot of that in our country and now we're wondering why we're in this situation. So during the pandemic, the Congress stepped up and it provided the most amount of funds I've ever seen provided for local government cities and counties to help address some of these issues and we have used those resources very well here for example we're about to bring online 200 units almost 200 units of permanent supportive housing which is designed for folks who are experiencing homelessness to become housed and have those wraparound services they need otherwise they become unhoused again so that's just an example and yes <laughs> So we have a lot of good things happening. Turning this battleship has been an effort. And we have a lot of people who aren't at this table that are doing the work around mental health, around housing, education, healthcare, all the other components that people need to be successful. So I'm hopeful the Congress understands that and sees it and will help us in this work because we are lucky in that we have so many people who are willing to do it right here in Western North Carolina. Thank you, Mayor. Before I call on the Representative Rudal, is Vic Isley here with Travel and Tourism? Vic? Somebody's pointing. I was requested that the Travel and Tourism have a chance to weigh in on this conversation after we'd already put the panel together, but I'm glad to see that you're here. I'd love for you to run down and grab a mic for just a minute and share from the tourism in industry any thoughts that you may have on this topic. Thank you for convening this. This is a very important topic and a very complicated one. And I would just say that first of all, I'm a resident of Asheville and Buncombe County, and that's what matters first. And that I've been talking around tables and with folks who will listen, that there are three things. Public safety for all. Everyone deserves to be safe in our community, whether they have a roof over their head or not. There need to be places for people to go and there needs to be equal enforcement of the law. Those are three things that we can all, I think, and hope agree on. And that is first for our residents, our customers, not to mention the visitors that come and help sustain all of these amazing creative local businesses and entrepreneurs that we have in our community. So thanks for the opportunity. All right, thank you. Representative Rudow, thank you for being here. I'm excited to see that we've got representation from the North Carolina legislature. And I asked you a question earlier, but I asked you to be very concise about that. I did want to give you a few minutes to offer any perspective that you might have on the conversation we've had today or your experience in serving the people of Western North Carolina on, on how we can reduce crime. I appreciate that, Congressman, and I would like to echo the mayor's comments that this has been a refreshing break out of some partisan politics, and I think it's been a fruitful discussion. I walk around my district and I have a t-shirt that says, I'm Caleb Rudell, I'm your representative of District 116, what's on your mind? And I ask that to people a lot, and that's our job, is to talk to as many people as possible to hear what they're worried about and to represent them and try to solve those problems. And I do hear crime occasionally, but really what I hear a lot more is affordable housing, is affordable health care, is we need to pay our teachers more. And I think the 
the mayor, mayor was talking about some of that. And I think that with the current North Carolina House budget, we would increase teacher pay by $20 a month, which is just frankly not enough. And so I think I'd like to zoom out a little bit. I think we've talked about a little bit about this kind of other th factors that influence crime. And I think when you're talking about what's the biggest bang for your buck, and Congressman, I appreciate your comments on, on prioritizing. I think we prioritize some of the long-term issues that we really need to focus on that, that keep people out of, the, out, of, out of prison, that keep people out of crime. And I think those are really good investments. And a part of the good news too is that at the state level, we have some money left over. We could spend on that. We have a surplus. And I, I really think what we should be thinking about is how do we spend that to best help people right now. So those are the kinds of long-term trends. And I also want to I want to give another shout out to, to, to Sheriff Miller. When I first took this job, I said, I want to go and I want to do a ride along with somebody. I ended up doing one, but what he said was, you should come to our after-school program on Friday. And I think that speaks to his character and speaks to his long-term vision too, which is that we need to do all the things that the people up here said. And I really think it's this is a great bipartisan conversation. I feel like I learned some things too, but we need to be focusing on those long-term solutions that are building up people so they can live safe, healthy, prosperous lives, which I think is the is the ultimate ultimate way to solve crime. And I'll take one more minute just to, to steal Sheriff Miller's trick again, which is what can we all do here? And I think there's been some talk about the media and what the media does. And I want to push back a little bit because we are a part of the media. Every media outlet is trying to get our eyeballs at all moments. And we look at things that are bad news and we don't look at good news as much. And I think thinking about this conversation is a good time to start thinking about that. Because from you know, what I heard from the chief and from the sheriff, there's some good news out there and we just don't hear it and we don't pay enough attention to it. And it's not to say that everything is rosy because it's obviously not and we got problems to work on, but I think all of us thinking about how do we have better conversations like this that are bipartisan and how do we focus on long-term trends and not just what is going wrong because I do think that we have a long ways to go, but we do have some things to celebrate. Thank you. Thank you. I see we've only got about three minutes left. I'm going to take the liberty to, to fill in that three minutes. And I'm going to do that, first of all, by thanking this panel. I know that it was quite a time commitment for all of you. Many of you did not get a chance to say all the things that, that you could have said, that you wanted to say, that we should hear. Let me assure you this conversation is not over. This is the beginning. I'm so encouraged and so refreshed to hear that we all have the same goal. I believe all of you have the same goal. We do have a little, some differences of opinion, in some cases it's political, on how we approach reducing crime in this incredible region that, that we've been blessed with. There's no reason that this region should be known as a high crime area like some of the others that, that we see in the country. But I believe that we should sound the alarm that, and I appreciate your criticism on the press release, but I've got to think Chicago started out at a place similar to where we're at one point or another. And so the alarm should be sounded that we don't, do not want to be like some of the other high crime areas that we see in the country. We don't have to accept. I refuse to accept that citizens in this district cannot feel safe to come to downtown Asheville or Clay County uh, at, night, at night or on a weekend. We're much better than that. I believe that we've got incredible leadership here in this room. 
we definitely have a citizen base, a constituency base that has the same level of interest. I hope that we all recognize that we play a part. Every single person that lives in this district plays a part, whether it's giving feedback on how we are prioritizing our budgets or that we are happy with or unhappy with a particular program or how we're spending our money or how we show our appreciation for the fine men and women that are out there protecting us each and every day. Remember, this is an edited version of what North Carolina Congressman Chuck Edwards convened as an anti-crime summit. Patreon supporters of this podcast can hear the complete conversation, which featured about two hours of dialogue with 14 elected officials, law enforcement professionals, and representatives of citizen groups. Hear that audio and support this podcast at patreon.com slash the Overlook Podcast. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.